So someone has said that the Bible can be summarized in this little phrase, the Bible tells us how to get right and how to live right with God. How to get right and how to live right with God. Would you say that aloud with me, you ready? How to get right and live right with God. And if you were to pick one book of the Bible to say, what is a book that sort of encapsulates that, like in a Cliff's Notes version, we would say it's the letter to the Romans. Written to believers by the Apostle Paul, believers who were in the city of Rome, Italy, and really to all of us, and how to get right and live right with God. We're going to be digging into that book here in the coming weeks, and I wanted just to uh, share with you a couple of reasons why I think this is such a worthwhile study that, uh, that uh, helps us to grow and to see the world in a better way. It's not just sort of a get to know a book better, but it's how to shape my life. And so if you're following along in the notes, which maybe you picked up on your way in the room here, or those of you online, you can go to our homepage, just click the bulletin, and you'll see the notes at the end there. These four benefits I'm not gonna mention are not in those notes, but you might wanna just um, write these ones down. Uh, but a, what is the benefit uh, for a journey through the book of Romans? Number one, you'll get a grip on the most important headline uh, ever in history around the globe, and it's the gospel. Get a better grip on the gospel that you'll begin to understand what happens when we encounter the good news. A number of years ago, a Christian counselor that I know was meeting with a guy named Tom. And Tom was an attorney in a very successful law firm. In fact, he was one of the partners. And he had all the money he wanted. He had all the toys that he wanted. He had everything he wanted except for happiness. He goes, I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, I, I have... I've got like everything I would have dreamed of and, and there's a gnawing hole in, in my soul. And so he's meeting with this counselor and the counselor says, I think you should, I'd like you to read the book of Romans. Uh, and in a sense, uh, Paul talks in sort of legal language in this, in this book. And he begins to read through the letter to the Romans and it arrests his heart. Like it just, it, it began to change him and what we're gonna read about the power of the gospel began to take hold in his life to the extent that uh, a number of weeks later, he stands up in his new church family, he tells them, he goes, this is what has happened in my life. Like it, it put the pieces together and he encountered Jesus in the book of Romans. That's my prayer for us. It changed his identity. So you get a grip on the gospel. Secondly, you'll find that your worldview is shaped by the book of Romans. It provides what we might call a helicopter view. It's sort of this view from above of what's happening down below, like what is going on in the world and how do I make sense of the brokenness and everything else? The book of Romans tells us, we're gonna see it. It tells us about the groaning of the world and creation and what God is doing to make it right. Number three, your understanding of doctrine grows. That is the foundations of your Christian faith. Now, if doctrine sounds sort of boring, think of doctrine as sort of like the footers of your house. You can't see them, but you really need them, right? My uh, guess is that none of us, when you've, if you've happened to buy a house, you've not said like, what I really want to see is not the size of your closets. I want to see your footers. We just assume that the footers are there, right? But if they're not done appropriately, according to spec, what happens? My sister lived in a house that previous owners had put a room on the back. And, uh, and it was a really nice looking room. It was like a sunroom, you know, all season kind of deal. But what they found out later is that the footers had not been dug sufficiently. 
It might have been like, you know, it's just like a 14 by 20 room. It's not that big of a deal. We don't have to go all the way down. And, and so they, they, they didn't put the footers to the depth that they should have. And what happened over the years? The house, that back room began to do what? Yeah, it began to sink a bit. To the extent that the door from the original part of the house to that place right there would not open correctly because there was settling. To an even greater extent, what we find happens in life is that we can be rolling along, everything looks good, it's you know, going great, but then we hit a storm. Turbulence comes into our life. We get a diagnosis. We experience a sudden loss. We, we come to the end of life and goes, there's gotta be something more. Maybe there's something that someone walks out of our life and, and, and we, we, we hit a storm. And if the footers of our lives are not solidly rooted, built, we find that when the storms come, we're, we're vulnerable and we might be shaken off. Romans helps to dig like really deep, solid, immovable footers in your life. One more thing. Letting this book soak into your life is like adding fertilizer in your walk with God. As you realize how much he loves you, your love for him begins to grow. And, and you start to realize that, that he has this life adventure for you as you encounter him, that you're never the same. So just in brief, you'll see this on the, on the slides here, the, the benefits of reading Romans, your love for God will grow, your understanding of doctrine will mature, your worldview will become more focused, and your awe of the gospel will increase. You ready to dig in? Let's turn uh, together to the book of Romans. It's the sixth book of the New Testament. If you're following along in your Bible app, you can do that. Those of you engaging online from wherever you are, really glad to have you with us uh, today as well. I just wanna tell you for a second about my philosophy of, of uh, messages. Uh, generally what we're gonna do is we want to get the forest for the trees, and so as we go through the book of Romans, we're gonna cover maybe like half a chapter a week. Now I realize some people do it differently. I know of a pastor who was going through the book of Romans, preached 250 sermons in the book of Romans, and got to chapter 11. 16 chapters. That to me feels like going to the Grand Canyon and you get out of the car and you're like, hey kids, everyone get a magnifying glass and you start looking at the, you know, the rocks or whatever and what do you miss? You miss the grand sweep of what is happening here. So I, I want us to get the grand sweep. So we're gonna be looking at a lot of the truths and themes throughout the book of Romans, but we're gonna get the big picture and I promise we're not gonna do 250 sermons in this book. If you're wondering like, hey, where exactly, what is the book of Romans all about? If you look at the back of your notes, if you got the paper ones or if you're online, you can see the second page there. I sort of like when, I, when I'm driving with someone, if they're driving, I'm like, where are we going? How are we gonna get there? I like having in my head. And an outline can do that, and so hopefully that outline helps, and we'll go over that in the coming weeks, but you'll see the five S's. It's the most memorable outline that I know of of the book of Romans, and has really served me and others well. So let's start at verse 16 in Romans chapter one. If I could recommend that you memorize two verses in this book, it would be these verses. In fact, scholars and students of Romans would say that Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17 are like a microcosm, uh, the thesis statement for the entire book. It's a super important statement. And so let's read it together aloud. Would you say this with me? We'll look at the screen here and you'll see we'll, so we're all on the same 
uh, translation. Let's say it together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That might seem a little bit cerebral, heady, but let me, we'll, we'll dig into that some more. Author Tim Keller tells how significant these verses were for Martin Luther as the founder of Protestantism back in the 1500s. Later in Luther's life, he would reflect on an experience, this highlight spiritual experience he had that he called sometimes the tower experience because he was, that's the location where he had this. And many people would call it his conversion experience and it all came back to these two verses in Romans chapter one. Here's what Luther wrote. Let me just read it in his own words. Luther said, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle or letter to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, that was his, he was a monk in the church, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and I had no confidence that my merit or good deeds would assuage him. Satisfy God. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Night and day, this is a monk. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that through gift and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Listen to this line. When I saw that law meant one thing and gospel another, I broke through. He had this breakthrough, which means that his life was radically transformed. His thinking, his vision on the world, his heart, his behavior, his relationship with God was transformed. He said, I had a, I had a breakthrough. And that would be his heart for you and for me today. It's, it's my heart for all of us. It's the Apostle Paul's heart. And really what we could say most of all, it's, it's God's heart. That we'll have a breakthrough and really understand our identity in relation to the gospel. This, this message that Paul has for us in this book. So let's start off with uh, the first couple of verses here and see what Paul says about that. Uh, this gospel. He says this, verse one of chapter one. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, that is a sent one, and set apart for what? The gospel of God. The gospel he promised. Paul is saying, there's this gospel that has just transformed my life, like it transformed Martin Luther. There was a, there was a breakthrough so what does the word gospel mean and why is it so important to who we are? The Greek word is euangelion. Uh, literally, the word you in Greek is good and angelion is messenger. You might also hear the word angel in that. Angel and messenger, same meaning. And so euangelion, a good messenger. So what they would do in that day, let's say that a, a general's off at battle and they didn't have 
Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. What a wonderful season it must have been in the world in that day, right? No social media. There was no CNN or Fox or whatever. And so when there was something major that happened, you didn't have media, of course, to send word. So what would they do? They would send an angelion. The general would say, hey, here's what happened in the battle. I want you to go and take this message back. And so this angelion would take the message back. And if it was good news about a victory won, it would be a euangelion because it was a good messenger, a good news messenger. And this messenger would go and say, victory, victory was won. And he'd tell that village and then he'd tell this village, victory was won. It's all, you know, and he'd go to this village, victory. And, and all the people would go home and celebrate. And it was great news because the euangelion, the good news messenger had come. Something had happened that they could celebrate even if they weren't there. That, friends, is the gospel, the euangelion. Christianity, there's a line in your notes that says this. It's really what the gospel means. Is not, listen to this, is not a set of rules. It's not a manual of good advice. It is a declaration, good news, that something has been done for you. Something outside of your own efforts. It's not about trying harder or seeking to be a good person so that somehow you make yourself acceptable to God. No, 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 no. Instead, it's something that has been done for you. A victory has been won. That's the gospel. Something has happened that can change us from the inside out. That's the euangelion, the gospel. And we discover that this gospel was always part of God's plan. Christ's perfect life and his sacrifice did not come as a surprise. It wasn't like, hey, wow, where did this come from? In fact, it was God's plan all along. If you look at verse two, he goes on and says, this gospel was promised when? Long ago, by God through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's part of the unfolding story of God. You see, just to be real clear, the Bible is not a, a collection of random stories. You know, some of you remember from high school, maybe some of you were in high school, you remember being in U.S. literature, Brit Lit, or something like that, and, and you'd get this compendium of short stories, and they were random stories, maybe by different authors, and you'd be like, yeah, they're not really, we just were reading this one this week, and that one next week, and, and you'd read them, but they didn't really fit together. Now, some people see the Bible as that. They're like, yeah, yeah, I know the story about, like, David and Goliath, or there's that one about Esther and the king, you know, and... And, uh, and then I heard about Jonah and then the one about Jesus, but there's sort of a collection of stories with really no connection between them. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible is a number of stories that all tie into one grand narrative. The Bible's one big story that's being written, not just about spiritual stuff, but about the history of the world. And here's what it says. First of all, the story begins with God in the beginning, God created, right? Everything made was good. It was beautiful. And he created us to be in a relationship with him where we could know him and there was a friendship with God. How long did it take for the people he created to screw that up? Not very long, right? You get to Genesis 3 and they've already messed it up and they're like, you know, we'll do life on our own. Thank you very much, God. We don't need you in our lives. That's what a lot of people say today, right? Might seem pretty good in the beginning, like I'm my own boss, I'm the captain of my own destiny, but what we realize is we end up crashing. And they did. 
And their rebellion against God leads to an infection of sin in their life and really for the whole world that there becomes divorce and tension and murder and, and wars in the first like book of the Bible, the first chapter of history, of human history. So you have this perfect world that's messed up by people's rebellion and then in the very beginning, God, long ago, Genesis chapter three says, you know what, I'm gonna take care of this problem. It's exactly what Paul said. He says, long ago, this gospel was promised. And God begins to make what's wrong, he begins to make it right. And he begins to, to renew and to reconcile and restore. Some might go, well, it's not working very well because there's a lot of pain in the world today. You know why? Because God's not done writing the story. He's got a whole lot more chapters to be written. Can I tell you this? The last chapter of the Bible and the last chapter of history, for those who are part of that story, it is a great ending. And it helps us to see. So when Paul says, this is the gospel promised long ago that God is, hasn't gone AWOL. He hasn't forgotten us. When I was, on Friday we had, uh, I was doing a, memorial for a family who's, you know, loved when it died, we're there at the cemetery. And there are the tears, and then I got word this morning in between services that someone had graced, their daughter was killed tragically in an accident last night. My heart aches. I wasn't even the one who encountered that loss personally, but as I walk alongside people, we sang earlier, do, do you think the world is broken? And we go, what? Yeah, we do. Do the shadows around you deepen? Yeah, they do. But do we know that he holds us in his hand? Do we know that God's spirit is at work among us? We know that as well, that, that God is writing this story and Paul says, this wasn't something that just came out of the blue. He says, this was something that was planned long ago. And Jesus is the centerpiece of that story. He's the perfect mediator. He's 100% God and he's 100% human. In fact, Paul writes that in verses three and four. Listen to what he says. Listen to for the human and divine identity of Jesus. He says, regarding his son, that's Jesus, who is to his earthly life was a descendant of David, that's his human side, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God, that's his divine side, empowered by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So first of all, he's 100% human. He had grandparents and aunts and uncles. He got sick. He skinned his knee as a toddler. He made mistakes when he was learning the trade as a carpenter. Those weren't sins, those are just, that's just to be human, right? If he would have played baseball, he would not have batted 1,000. And when he struck out, he would have been tempted to swear. You go, no, not Jesus. Yeah, that. Actually, he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he never, what? He never sinned. So he was 100% human. He had to be to feel like our condition and to understand who we are. But not only that, he's also 100% God. And Paul says, evidenced by his resurrection from the dead. That was further proof he was God. So I'm like, oh, well, there are other people who came back from the dead, like Lazarus and Jairus' daughter. That's true. But all of those ones who came back from the dead what happened again? They also, they died again, right? But not so with Jesus. When Jesus was raised from the dead, 
He then ascends to heaven to live forever as our king, and he is God. In fact, if you turn over several pages to Romans chapter 9, this is the verse that probably when uh, Jehovah's Witness comes you know, knocking on my door, and if we get in a conversation, I'll say, hey, can you just explain this one verse to me right here? Romans chapter 9, it says this. The Messiah, partway through the verse there, the Messiah who is God over all forever praise. Now, who's the Messiah? That's Jesus, right? Jesus is God over all forever praised. So he's actually 100% God. He's 100% human. It's that Christ who won the victory. He's the centerpiece of the gospel. And so Jesus is mentioned 11 times in these first 17 verses alone. It's why our motto as a church is exalting Jesus Christ. That means bringing the focus on Jesus by making disciples who love him, who grow with others, and who serve a world in need. It's all about Jesus. You know what I wonder, what I love about the gospel is it's not only been planned since long ago, it's all about Jesus. It's something that, a victory that's been won. I don't have to work for or earn it. There's a universal invitation. No one is excluded. Like, you're never so bad that you can't, the gospel can't apply to you. This is, the gospel is for everyone who believes. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to pretty religious people, to, to pretty good people. No, to, to whom? To everyone who believes. That's us. A righteousness that he gives us that's by faith. That means it's a gift just by believing him from first to last. There are a number of themes we're gonna trace all the way through the entire book of Romans. This is one of them, and it's this. You are accepted and forgiven entirely by faith in what Jesus has done for you. Not because you've, you're a pretty good person, like you, know, you serve in the community, you've, you buy Girl Scout cookies whenever they show up at your door, or not because you've avoided bad stuff, like I've never done what that guy did that. Did you see the headline? Like I would never do that. That's not what makes us acceptable to God. We'll never get there by our own goodness or lack of badness. Instead, it's a gift. That's why the gospel is such good news. Here's what Paul says in another place. He says, for it is by faith or by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the what? The gift of God, not by works so that no one can brag about it. In other words, none of us can ever say like, yeah, I think I'm gonna, you know, God looks around and is trying to figure out who to get into heaven. He's gonna, I think I got a pretty good shot, you know, I think my good stuff's out. If you're banking on that, you're not gonna make it. You'll never be good enough. The gospel is about something that was done outside of you, but for you. And there's this amazing exchange we aren't simply forgiven. We receive Jesus' perfect record. It gives you this new and unshakable identity. Listen to how Paul says it in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we both receive something that we don't deserve. Jesus receives all of our 
miserable record that he didn't deserve, and we receive all of his righteousness that we don't deserve. And that shapes our identity. A couple of weeks ago, we were visiting uh, our son Andrew at the Air Force Academy. It was parents' weekend out there in Colorado Springs, and so we're at the football game. They have this football game, you know, and they're uh, at the stadium. All the cadets at each of the academies have to go to every home game and, game, and they have to stand for the entire game in uniform. Like, it was in the mid to upper 80s, and they're in this full, like, blue kind. I'm like, I don't know how they're doing it. And uh, so the Dooleys, the academies, they, like, they don't like to call you freshmen. They call you Dooley. They always have their own names. Anybody who's been in the military, you know you have like an acrostic or an abbreviation for everything. I'm wearing my ACTs to the AFPTU. I'm going to meet you at 0730, and we're going to do the X3479. And I'm like, just, I don't understand anything they're saying, right? When our daughter was at West Point, they called juniors cows. So I said, now, now you're a cow? And she goes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm now a cow. And... Uh, that junior is not good enough for them. So all the Dooleys, freshmen at Air Force Academy, when you're a freshman, you have like no rights. They don't call you by your name, at least your first name. When you, when you go from your barracks to the class, you have to run the entire way. And you, you cannot just run the shortest distance. You can only run on the marble strips, which is always at these right angles. So you run this way and this way and that. If they catch you not running... And when you're in the hallways, you're right up against the hallway. You don't talk to people, you know. And so you have zero rights. So at this football game, they have this tradition where the Dooleys, these freshmen, they are permitted to try to talk to as many upperclassmen as they can and to fill their almost completely bare uniforms with as many stripes and medals and bars and all the things that, you know, military people wear. And so this one kid is like, a couple weeks ago, he's doing amazing. He's got like all over. He's all oh, these upperclassmen are. And then he sees the three-star general, General Richard Clark, the top dog at the, I shouldn't call him. If he's watching, I'm really sorry. The, the top general, the top at, at the entire Air Force Academy. And so this Dooley goes up to the general. He goes, sir, I'm wondering if I could have your hat the general's hat, it's got the stars on it, you know, and everything. The general looks at him, sees all this, all the stuff this kid has got, and he goes, sure. But let's, let's get a selfie, the two of us together. <laughs> Dooley puts the hat on, you get a picture together, and this Dooley has all these medals and bars and stripes that were completely undeserved, Right? Now, here's, here's what really happens at the end. At the end of the day, you have to give them all back. But you know what the gospel says? The gospel is this, that all of the medals and accomplishments and privileges of Jesus are given to us the moment that we believe. Jesus said in John 17, he says, Father, you love my followers, your children, just as much as you love me. Go back and read it. That God the Father loves me as much as he loves his son Jesus. He's taken me from being this lowly dooley with no rights, bound for hell, and he gives me all the privileges of God the Son. That's our inheritance. 
That changes your sense of identity. Paul talks about that in these opening statements. Let me just read two and then we'll wrap up. He says in verse seven, he says, you are loved by God. Another translation says, God loves you dearly. You might be struggling a little bit. We all go through this at times in life where we go, I wonder about my value or significance. Maybe you're coming to the end of your career and you're like, I'm not quite where I thought I would be. I got passed over for a couple of promotions. Or maybe you're not in the circle socially that you wish you were a part of, like I wish they would invite me in or you've had someone walk out on you in life and you maybe question like your value or the, what other people see in you. Can I just say this loud and clear? That the basis of the gospel, the message of the gospel is this, that the most important person in all of history and the universe God himself loves you dearly. That's, that's what he says here. Not only that, verse six, it says, you belong to Jesus. Like, you've been called to that. That's big. He chooses us before we choose him. We'll talk more about that. But when we come into a relationship with Jesus and the gospel breakthrough happens in our lives, we get a new identity. You see, the gospel isn't merely intellectual. It's the power of God to change us. It answers our deepest questions and needs. Sometimes people go, it's just too simple. It's too easy. How do you just believe like, and then you just live however you want? If you really understand the gospel, it changes you. Paul says this in verse 7. He goes, to all in Rome and in Middlebrook Heights and wherever you may be who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. You see, the gospel is something that happens outside of us, what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, but it profoundly changes everything inside of us. He says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. People always, there's always people ashamed, like I'm just sort of embarrassed to mention Jesus or the whole thing about, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Why? It's the power of God. It's the power of God that brings salvation, life transformation for everyone who believes. Friends, the power of the gospel is enough to, to wipe out every failure and sin in my life and yours. The power of the gospel is enough to give us victory over every hurtful habit and addiction in our lives. I've seen it happen in, in my 31 years as a pastor that I've seen people who went from a kind of person you go, I would never want that person to be in my family or my neighbor or whatever, to being a person you're like, wow, I want to be like that person. How do you describe that? Someone goes, well, they probably got in some kind of program, whatever. It's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming and changing a person's life from the inside out and, and changing their identity. Paul says, I've been called to the gospel. And he wants us to have a gospel breakthrough because, friends, it changes the way you see your life and the way you see the world. Some of you remember, let me close with this. You remember schoolyard kickball games, uh, elementary school. Remember, you go out for recess and, and you had two captains and they would pick like 10 people each and they'd go, I'll take you because that Kenny kid can hit over the fence. His leg is like Lou Groza and I'm going to take this guy and they'd pick back and forth. And the worst thing was if you were picked what? Last. You felt like or not to be picked at all. 
And he'd sort of shuffle out to the outfield like, uh, I guess I'll just sort of be out in right field, like, you know. And Some people feel like that in life. They go, I, I, just, if, I just don't feel like, you know. That, uh, that I really matter that much. Friends, you see, in the end, what makes your life significant is not who you are, but whose you are. That's the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. May that be us. Let's thank him together for what he's done. Jesus, for the price that you paid to make this possible, we say thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us meaning and hope and understanding in a chaotic and confused world that we can know who we are and who you are and where this story of history is going. So Lord, some of us, we've encountered you. That breakthrough happened a long time ago, but we just pray today and in the weeks to come, Lord Jesus, give us a fresh sense of awe at what you've done. And Lord, for those who are inquiring, investigating, I pray for a breakthrough, a breakthrough that would grant them an entirely new identity. Jesus, thank you for all you've done for us and uh, for allowing us to belong to you. In your name we pray. And every grateful person said, Amen.